This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. I am Senior Editor of Education Next. Thank you for joining me. The 16th Annual Survey of Public Opinion on Education Policy, administered by Education Next and the Harvard Program on Education Policy and Governance, has just been released. The poll is given online to a nationally representative sample of the U.S. adult population. This year, we also surveyed parents separately, and we surveyed them in the district charter and private sectors. We also oversampled African Americans and Hispanic Americans in order to get a good impression of uh, the thinking in those communities. David Houston, Martin West, and I were all involved in the design of this year's poll. Uh, you can obtain the results by going to the Education X website. And I'm delighted to have with me today on the Education Exchange, the survey director of the poll, David Houston. He's a professor in the College of Education and Human Development at George Mason University. So thank you, David, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks, Paul. Good to be here. Well, David, let me first ask you what you think are the most important findings to emerge from this year's survey. Oh, there's a couple of stories that I think are worth telling from this year's results. Oh, I, I, I see four of them off the top of my head. The first one is that in last year's poll, you know, we every year we ask a battery of similar questions about a bunch of different education reform initiatives, uh, charter schools, uh, questions about spending, questions about teachers' salaries, questions about community college or vouchers, things like that. And last year we were somewhat surprised when we saw support for all of these reforms across the ideological spectrum, left and right, went down. At the, the height of the pandemic, public enthusiasm for education reform of any ideological stripe uh, dipped. All that seemed to have bounced back in the, in the last year. The public's attitudes towards various reforms seems to have returned to pre-pandemic contours. But overlapping on, on top of that is the second story, which is that evaluations of school quality have dipped, despite being somewhat remaining robust during the pandemic itself. We ask parents almost every year, you know, what grade would you give your local public schools in A, B, C, D, or F? And American, uh, the American public and American parents were, were expressed a lot of solidarity with educators during the hardest years of the pandemic. Now we're seeing those numbers tick downwards and something interesting is happening there. Well, I guess the second point connects to uh, what I thought was interesting about the poll this year. And I, I was more involved with the parents' poll, so I, I spent more time with that. I wrote up the uh, first uh, draft of the essay that's on the Education Next website. And I, what I noticed there was that there, the movement away from the public school, the traditional public school, uh, seems to have persisted beyond the pandemic. It's not a big change. It's only four percentage points down from where it was in, in 2019, uh, but it is still there. And it looks like everybody else has just picked up a piece of that, whether it's the homeschooling community or it's charter schools or or private schools are all picking up a little bit of it. it. It's it's so small that in the survey you can't be sure it's a reality. But the fact that we saw it in the pan during the pandemic and we're seeing it now, so there 
could be something happening there, but whether it's a big thing or it's a little thing, we, we really don't know. So that I thought was one of the uh, interesting findings. And the second interesting uh, finding was that that people are much more positive about what happened to their kids now than they were a year ago. A year ago, they were anxious and nervous about learning loss, about uh, the fact that uh, kids' social relationships weren't so good, their emotional health wasn't so good, but there's a lot more uh, feeling of normalcy out there. Despite what you're reading in the newspapers, you're reading all about social distress and emotional distress, but we actually saw parents reporting that for their child, they really thought things were uh, quite a bit better, not just a little bit better, but a lot better uh, this, this, uh, this time around. Yeah, you've actually you've perfectly captured what I think is the third story here, which is about these shifting parental evaluations of their own kids' educational experience. There are these two parallel dynamics that are happening here that are tough to square. So exactly as you pointed out, satisfaction with their kids' schools is ticking upwards. You know, we asked folks, we asked parents this question in spring of 20, in fall of 2020, in spring of 21, and again in the spring of 22, you know, how satisfied are you with the instruction and activities provided by this child's school? And that number has been steadily ticking up. And the, you know, the proportion of parents who are saying that they're dissatisfied has been steadily ticking down. The vast majority of parents are expressing you know, pretty significant satisfaction with their kids' educational experience. But that, that's happening at the same time as you know, th this other phenomenon, which is when you ask parents, when you drill down into a little bit more detail, you, know, you ask, you know, do you think this child is learning more or less or about the same this school year as they would have learned had there not been a pandemic or, you know, are the measures this child's school is taking to limit the spread of COVID-19 having positive or negative effects on this child's learning or social and emotional skills or, uh, or, or, or physical fitness, questions like that. There's still this lingering 25 to 30% of parents who are expressing negative sentiment here, who are, who are still concerned that their their child their child's school's reaction to the pandemic is still harming their child in some way. So there's this large majority of parents who are quite content, which belies, I think, many of these headlines that suggest that there's, you know, that it's all doom and gloom. But there's this non-trivial minority. It's hard to, you know, identify exactly how large it is, be it 20 or 25 or 30 percent, who are still expressing some misgivings. Well, there is a, a related finding here, this one about uh, social and emotional learning or academic learning. We've asked, well, what's more important? What should the schools concentrate most of their attention? I've forgotten exactly how the question is worded. You can probably find it there, or you probably can remember it. But, but there was this, uh, a year ago, we saw a huge uptick in the percentage of parents who felt that the schools need to address the social emotional side. And there's a lot of talk about that in the academic community. Uh, but uh, this year we get them, the parents are sort of saying, well, actually, they probably should focus on the academics, or at least there's been a shift in that in that direction. Yeah, this is another case where we saw this really significant change in public opinion last year. 
and it has since rebounded back to the pre-pandemic position. So, you know, back in it was 2018 or 2019, we asked, you know, how much should schools focus on students' academic performance versus student social and emotional well-being? And on average, parents said that, and the public as well, said about two-thirds of the emphasis should be on academic performance and about one-third should be on social and emotional well-being. At the height of the pandemic, that, that changed to a 50-50 split, suggesting that it was a particularly challenging time for so many kids, for so many families, and you know, we needed additional support on non-academic needs. But that has since reverted back to the uh, two-thirds, one-third split favoring academic performance. But now there's also an interesting finding that uh, support for teacher salaries has gone up. Now, I don't know if that just is because everybody's making more money and there's more inflation. Actually, this was put, you know, parents filled this out in May. So some of the talk about recession has hadn't yet surfaced that much. Um, and we know that support for increasing salaries can be connected to the general economic uh, situation. We've seen that over the years. Mm -hmm. Really, there is a, a, a lot of support for teachers out there and a lot of support for paying teachers more. As always, when you're tracking public opinion over time, it's really hard to tease out, you know, what's the what's the big factor that caused this change or that change? And it's hard to know exactly why we see an increase in support for higher teacher salaries. Uh, the, the fact of the matter, though, is, is that we are seeing the highest support for increased teacher salaries in the history of our poll. And that's not just true among uh, participants for whom we ask the generic, you know, do you think teachers' uh, salaries in your state should increase, decrease, or stay about the same? We also randomly assign half of the sample to receive information about the current average salary of teachers in their state. And then we ask the same question to them. And you know we call this the informed condition when asking the teacher salary question. And within the informed condition, that is also at the highest level that we've recorded in our survey's history. Yeah, no, that's a really uh, a big change because mostly we don't see changes. Uh, we saw the you know as you mentioned at the very beginning, we saw uh, going back to normal. But if you look, uh, you know, at the trend line over a long time, we. We we see ups and little ups and downs, but we don't see big changes. And this is a, this is a big change. The one other big change that I noticed was the education savings accounts. When mm -hmm. we put that question out in 2017, um, we didn't get a very uh, you know a fairly small percentage of the population um, was uh, supportive of this new idea that's uh, been thrown out there by the uh, school choice movement. Uh, but um, that percentage has uh, jumped uh, 10 percentage points in the last uh, since 2017. So uh, that's one of the bigger changes that we have uh, that we uh, pick up this year. That's right. Yeah, we see a 10 percentage point jump in support for education savings accounts since 2017. We also see jumps of similar magnitude when we ask about um, left-leaning issues like universal pre-K. Um, or um, publicly funded two-year and four-year colleges. I think as these issues increase in salience, you know, both issues on the left and both issues on the right, we're starting to see, you know, um, more clearly delimit uh, uh, distinguished public opinion about it. 
But there is a big partisan split on a lot of issues out there. Wouldn't, wouldn't right. you agree? That's uh, exactly right. And there are some new issues that have emerged that exhibit particularly large partisan splits in these last couple of years. Uh, yes, one of them being the teaching of race in the classroom, though I have to say that uh, maybe it's the way we worded the question. Uh, you know, the way you word questions uh, has such a huge effect on the kind of responses you get. And we worded our question in uh, in a way that was less hysterical than a lot of the <laughs> conversation out there. Oh, I think you're right. This one was really difficult to to wordsmith correctly. You know, when you include the phrase critical race theory, which you know is has you know risen in prominence over the last couple of years, people's reactions tend to be sort of just, you know, intensely politicized to the extent where it, you, you may not be capturing the actual public sentiment around the underlying debate. So we tried a more muted version of the question that we thought captured the, the core of the argument, but, you know, parties will differ on this. Um, and it's hard to ask this question well. We asked, some people think their local public schools place too much emphasis on slavery, racism, and other challenges faced by Black people in the United States. Other people think their local schools uh, place too much emphasis on these topics. What is your view about your local public schools? And we see a very sharp partisan divide in responses to this. But still, more people say it's about right than say either of the other two options. I think yeah, that's correct. The plurality says what is that it? about right. Yeah, what is the percentage that say it's about the right amount? Uh, about 39%, close to 40. 30, yeah, close to 40%. And I think 33% think it's uh, too little emphasis with a, you know, a, a higher percentage of, of uh, Black respondents taking that point of view. And 27% and uh, think there's too much emphasis on that, which has been the view that uh, uh, you get a higher percentage of the white community. So you have these um, you have these differences and points of view, but still you had 40% or a plurality of all of, of all the parents sort of saying, well, you know, it's done about right at my school. You know, what I thought was particularly interesting is we asked this question separately to all adults in general, as well as to parents of school-age kids. And among parents of school-age kids, in fact, parents representing about 65% of school-age kids um, say that it's about the right amount of emphasis on issues of race and racism in, the, in their child's classroom. So we don't know quite what that means. It could be that there's a lot of variation out there in the schools, but the variation that's taking place out there is responsive to the local opinions of the hmm. community that the uh, children are residing in. So uh, it, it may be that there's, a, my guess is there's a lot of variety in the way in which issues of race and, and uh, slavery are taught. And I, I doubt that it's taught in the same way in New England as it is in the deep south my how guess. could it not be in such a decentralized system like ours right and so maybe that's the wisdom of the system we have created is that you keep public support for the schools because you let the school respond to the sentiments in the communities in which they are embedded um so we did ask about vaccinations and that was sort of interesting i i found it pretty interesting that uh, a child was much more likely to be vaccinated if they were 
a Democrat living in a blue state than if they were a Republican living in a red state. That's a huge difference. That's exactly right. So, uh, so people's, you know, people are making decisions about their children and their well-being that seem highly politicized. It just is, uh, and it also seems to be picking up the culture in which they're embedded to. So, it's a Republican in a democratic state's behaving differently than a Republican in a red state and the same with Democrats. So, so it's uh, the community identity and the individual's identity are both uh, operative here. And we tease out all of those distinctions, you know, being a red state Republican versus a blue state Republican and a red state Democrat versus a blue state Democrat. I, those, those are a few too many numbers for me to keep at my fingertips, but they are in the article if you were interested. So, David, what do you what do you think we missed this year? If you had uh, now that we know what we found, uh, what didn't we ask that we should have asked? You know, we didn't ask about another important debate that's been you know charging school board meetings and you know riling up school board meetings over the last year, which has been the rights of transgender children. Um, we didn't ask about that in our survey. We we captured some of the sort of intense politicized debates with respect to the teaching of race and racism. Um, we asked about COVID mitigation strategies like vaccines and face mask mandates. Um, but that's another debate that I I would also have liked to have seen how the uh, responses divide. Yeah, I agree. I don't know how we missed that, but when you put together a survey, you think you've got everything in there, and then. Uh... It's always well. Next, well, next year we can take a look at that. I, I don't think that debate's going to go away. In the meantime, well, what have we missed in our conversation here, David? Well, you know, you brought up a, a topic that I think is worth mentioning again uh, earlier on in our conversation, which is the shifts in school sector enrollment over time. Um, and this is, you know, this is one of these big debates that is. Uh, that is roiling the research community and the, the policy community and the, you know, the community of, of teachers and school leaders on the ground, which is, you know, after this great disruption, are students going to return to traditional district schools in the same numbers that we that we saw before the pandemic? Now, I should give a warning to the to the audience that this is a particularly difficult question to answer with survey data, like the Ednext poll, because we're talking about precisely estimating small percentages. You know, back in 2016, the US Department of Education estimated that about 3% of American school children were being homeschooled. Now, if that rate were to have doubled, which would be a massive increase in the, the rate of homeschooling, that would be a three percentage point increase in homeschooling, which is very difficult to precisely identify using, uh, using uh, public opinion surveys. Um, that said, when we attempt to tease out these sector enrollment numbers over time, you know, we're getting numbers that are pretty darn similar to what other folks are, are throwing out there, which is we're seeing a small but non-trivial reduction uh, in the overall enrollment in traditional district schools by a couple of percentage points. And sort of just as equally, we're seeing that reduction uh, more or less evenly distributed across private school enrollment, charter school enrollment, and homeschooling, which have all upticked. Um, by a couple of percentage points. Um, it's it's hard to say this with certainty until we get actual enrollment data, which is always comes out a few years later. 
Um, but it seems as if some, you know, non-trivial shift is happening. Yes, I think the, uh, the homeschooling one is interesting because uh, we saw initially jump from 3% to 6%. The Census Bureau came up with a ridiculous number of 11%, which was quite not credible. But we the 6% figure is sticking. And, uh, and if we're really doubling the percentage of people homeschooling their children, that's a major change. Uh, I doubt that it's, it can't go up and up and up. It's got to reach a, a peak somewhere because uh, not that many people are going to be willing to spend that amount of time that it takes to educate their own child. But it does seem like there is a growing segment of the population that's, uh, that's concerned about uh, the organized way in which schooling is being provided. And I think this, you know, this pattern that we're seeing in the data also aligns with what we also talked about before, which is that the vast majority of parents of school-aged children are expressing what I think is sincere satisfaction with their kids' educational experience. But there's this non-trivial and fairly vocal minority that is, you know, pretty discontent. Well, David, thank you very much for uh, joining me on the Education Exchange to discuss the poll. And thank you also for your uh, heroic work on, on launching the poll and, and getting it all put together and, uh, and teasing out uh, the data from, uh, from uh, the responses that people have provided. So thank you much for, for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with David Houston. Uh, he's the director of the survey that Education Next administers each year. He is a professor in the College of Education and Human Development at George Mason University. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me Monday noon for the latest release of the Education Exchange podcast.